Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finan Jørgensen. Um, and I'm Dolly Jørgensen. Uh, and today we are not sitting together in the same place as we usually do because I'm at an event in Bergen. Uh, but the advantage of online events is we can do it this way too. Uh, today we have with us uh, Keith Plamers. Did I say your last name right? How do you, would you say it? Yeah, Plymers. Plymers. Excellent. Oh, that's Thank you. Good. Okay, Keith Plymers, uh, assistant professor of history at Illinois State University, uh, who will talk about his book No Wood, No Kingdom: Political Ecology in the English Atlantic, which came out with University of Pennsylvania Press uh, in 2021. So we'll just go straight then to the book presentation. Uh, all right. So thank you again all for having me here. In 1611, and then again in 1613, the English agricultural writer Arthur Standish warned that England was facing a social, political, and environmental crisis. Uh, the country had grown denuded of trees. This was leading to an outbreak of rural crime as people were unable to deal with themselves. And, and he would even blame it on a massive uprising in the Midlands just a few years before. As he put it most pithily when writing to the king, James I, no wood, no kingdom. And Standish is capturing something broader in early modern European history that, that's been fairly well documented by other historians namely that there are widespread fears of wood scarcity that emerge in the 16th and 17th centuries. However, I wanna push in a slightly different direction than I do in this book, which is to think about some other texts that are coming into play at right about the same moment as Standish. So in 1610, just a year before Standish published, published the first edition of this pamphlet, the Virginia Company put out a pamphlet in which they warned that a wasting sickness, and they used the language of illness, had run through the woods of England and had devastated the groves of Ireland. This, however, was not curable, while Standish proposed that there were solutions to address the problem of wood scarcity in England. The Virginia Company said, there were not. It was such a sickness as no physic could cure uh, in the language of early modern health and medicine. The only solution as far as these Virginia company promoters were concerned was to move any and all production of woodland commodities, ironworks, ship timber, pitch and tar production over to a place where they happily and conveniently enough happened to have a colony that as they put it was full of trees of every variety that could serve England's needs. A third text that comes out within a five-year period of this is from Dudley Diggs. Dudley Diggs was a member of the Virginia Company, intriguingly enough here, but was also uh, closely associated with the East India Company and was known as an East India Company promoter at a period when there were threats of regulation. Diggs took an entirely different perspective than either Standish or the Virginia Company. As far as Diggs was concerned, Wood scarcity was a fantasy and a chimera. The only people who cared about trees in England were those who wanted to look at them because they enjoyed their aesthetic properties. The threatening poor, 
uh, vagrants who were living in the woods outside of the safety and security of towns, uh, committing all sorts of crimes and engaging in abuse, as he put it. Uh, and then the rotten landlords who were packing their woods with poor cottagers, uh, profiting from the misery and potential criminality of those there. As far as he was concerned, there was no scarcity in England. The only reason anyone from Virginia, remember a company that he was associated with, was even claiming that there was is because Virginia was a colony that men knew not what to do with, as he put it. So within these three texts, we see three very different ideas about the state of England's woods and about whether colonies and whether which what colonies uh, could provide any support to deal with that. And this is a place in which my book pushes in a different direction from some of the other works on early modern wood scarcity. A lot of the work on early modern wood scarcity focuses on state formation within various European countries. The idea is to look at a text like Standish and connect it to the creation of new bureaucracy, new taxation structures, new forms of governmental efficiency and bureaucracy that are going to emerge with someone like James I or, or that we'll see later in France, for example, when we have the Forest Ordinance of 1668. In contrast, I want to look at the relationship between fears of English wood scarcity and English colonial expansion in the 16th and 17th centuries, and the way in which those fears were marshaled in order to justify or not particular colonial endeavors, and then the ways in which wood was actually managed on the ground. So what I show in the first chapter of the book which looks closely at England, is precisely the way in which scarcity is constructed. And so getting beyond texts like Standish, for example, and down into surveys, uh, in this case, Roger Taverner's book of survey of English forests conducted under Elizabeth, but then similar surveys from people like John Norden, for example, all the way up to the surveys and court cases that accompanied the reintroduction of the forest laws under Charles I, uh, starting in the 1630s, looking at how exactly ideas of scarcity were being constructed. And so I try to frame it as a problem in the history of knowledge production, uh, as well as thinking about trees. And even in looking at something like Taverner, the way in which trees are counted and the way in which qualitative knowledge, there's an attempt to translate it into numerical forms, shows in many cases that scarcity emerged not when there was a lack of trees, but rather when there was an inability to describe what was there, when there were contests between different surveyors, one who might give a qualitative description saying, many good trees, and another who might record a number saying, only five acres usable, or something like that. Out of these problems that emerge from the production of knowledge about English woodlands and out of policy decisions that lead to it. It's one of the big issues that produces scarcity here uh, throughout multiple English administrations are a series of reform measures, uh, essentially fights over forestry practice between old and new forest bureaucracies in this period that sometimes play out in things like survey we find that scarcity emerges at particular moments, often following on a survey. So attempting to count how many trees are there or figure it out oftentimes produces uh, the very anxiety that the counting exercise was designed to deal with. 
And so by looking closely at English constructions of scarcity, the ways in which they'd often reflected social conflict rather than an actual absence of woods. So conflicts between uh, say cottagers or people who are using the forests as commons, uh, ironworks which have particular needs in the forest, shipbuilders which have a different set of needs in how a forest is constructed. We see that those colonial promoters needed to produce two fantasies when they were talking about scarcity. They needed to construct the idea of an England that had no more usable woods and needed external solutions, as well as constructing an idea about other places that were full of infinite or near infinite trees that could be taken at much cheaper costs and solve all of the problems. So after looking at England, the book looks at two cases in pretty quick succession, looking at Ireland and Virginia. And for both Ireland and Virginia, uh, those colonial efforts, so in Ireland, a series of plantations from the 1580s forward, uh, and then in Virginia, a series of colonies uh, in the Virginia Company, and then again in a royal, uh, royal colony in the 1620s, are going to consistently claim that they're able to address the problem of English wood scarcity in various ways. And it plays out a bit differently on the ground as I show. So in looking at Ireland, and here we have as an image, uh, a, a really wonderful map from the National Library of Ireland that is showing us the fantasy of one of Walter Raleigh's estates. And you can see how well wooded it is here, uh, which he got from the notorious Henry Pine, uh, who was one of the great exporters of pipe staves and other wood products in the period. He and Raleigh engaged in a number of lawsuits against each other. Uh, Pine would survive Raleigh's demise and go on to create havoc uh, in Irish woods, uh, leading to accusations of scarcity throughout this period. But in Ireland, what we see is that the efforts and the, the desire to make Ireland the sort of place that could solve England's purported problems with woods quickly ran into difficulties. In the granting out of colonial lands uh, like these at Mogili, shown here, uh, there was no effort to reserve forests for the crown. So unlike England, where you had specific lands that were set aside with a distinctive set of laws, with a bureaucracy that at least in theory was designed to preserve the forest for particular use, to protect trees in various ways. In Ireland, when land grants were given for land that was to be planted in Munster in the Southwest and then in Ulster in the North of Ireland, uh, woods were never reserved. There were occasional restrictions that were put on how planters could use them. But for the most part, uh, all of the trees were given away despite the objections of at least some colonial officials and the fantasy within the promotional literature that Ireland would be producing wood for England during this time period. Interestingly enough, that's going to produce some of the fears of scarcity in Ireland that will lead to the Virginia Company saying that Ireland too had been denuded of woods. But as in the case in England, where fears of scarcity were often the result of bureaucratic contest or fights over how knowledge was produced, in Ireland as well, we have what I refer to in the book as paper deforestations. So for example, 
in starting in about 1607 and then continuing through the 1610s, uh, the Lord Deputy Sir Arthur Chichester is going to really worry uh, in response to Privy Council calls for Ireland to supply woods that he has nothing to give to the king. But the fact that he has nothing to give to the king doesn't mean that there are no trees. It just means that he can't give them because they've already been given away. Uh, this is going to be a persistent problem for colonial officials in Ireland. They will receive calls from England saying, hey, we need some wood. Can you give it to us? And consistently will be unable to do so. Uh, there's going to be real tensions here in trying to imagine how exactly Irish wood should be used. These will end up in big fights. Wood taking these woods and turning them over solely to the needs of the Navy or the Crown end up threatening the delicate economic prosperity which colonial officials hoped would be driving uh, the cultural transformation of plantation in Ireland at all. And so there's competing visions for what exactly Irish woods should do. Uh, and that those competing visions are going to lead, in fact, to some of the issues around scarcity that are going to emerge. That's produced quite a historiographic problem even for Ireland. Ireland remains one of the least forested countries in Europe to this day. And there is a long-standing argument that it was the plantations that destroyed Ireland's woods and forests. And indeed, intensive use did change the landscape. Uh, but uh, archaeological investigations have found that, in fact, much of the deforestation is Neolithic rather than early modern in Ireland. And in part, one of the reasons that we even have these allegations showing up, oh, the English deforested Ireland during the plantations is from English sources complaining about deforestation. And yet, as I show in the book, those complaints are the result of conflicting visions for how Irish wood should be put to use. We do, in see, we do indeed see efforts to craft something that I would say we might anachronistically call sustainability emerging in say the forestry practices of Richard Boyle, um, the ravenous and notorious planter and the first Earl of Cork, who will aggressively manage his woods, who will engage in things like fuel substitution, uh, forcing towns to move over to the burning of peat or turf, uh, rather than drawing woods from forests in order to preserve trees for his ironworks or pipe stave industries, barrel manufacturing and storage manufacturing at this period. And so there are efforts to pretty closely manage woodland resources, even in a colonial setting here. It's not just rapid exploitation for exploitation's sake that's happening, despite the rhetoric of scarcity that's going to emerge from it. So neither England nor Ireland are, as Virginia promoters would claim, uh, places that were wasted and denuded of any goods and resources. This will end up producing a number of problems in Virginia. Uh, early efforts to craft wealth and a colonial policy from the woods in Virginia often focused on the cornucopian wealth of it. And cornucopian in a very literal sense, they imagined the they really were thrilled at the sheer diversity of trees that were available in Virginia. You would see these long lists of merchantable commodities as Thomas Harriet would put it, uh, which often focused on what was in the woods. 
But the issue as I show here is that it's one thing to say there are all of these examples of trees that could be economically useful. It's another thing to figure out exactly how to use them and to have sufficient densities of woods to make them useful. So over the first three decades of colonial of English colonial efforts in Virginia, one woodland enterprise after another fails, uh, in part because they don't have sufficient densities of trees, they don't have skilled labor, they don't have the ability to export these commodities across the Atlantic at rates that will be competitive or in ways that will have them compete in European markets. Uh, that leads to frequent calls for the crown to intervene and to create fixed markets that will be essentially monopolies in which the crown will become a, a buyer of first and last resort, essentially enabling the development of Virginia's woods, uh, despite promises from multiple monarchs, that never happens. Uh, the closest that the Virginia company ever gets to making this function is with an ironworks that is built in 1621 and may or may not have ever gone into operation before it is destroyed uh, during the second Anglo-Powhatan War that's going to kick off in dramatic fashion uh, with a huge raid in 1622. Archaeologists are still hunting around to see if there's evidence that this thing ever actually fired iron, um, but there's at least some desire there and there's enough sense of a commercial market across the Atlantic that maybe this was going to work. So in looking at England, Ireland, and Virginia, I try to show that while the desire to make colonies fit was often shaped by this rhetoric of wood scarcity, in practice it was really difficult to do so. The Irish woodland industries that succeeded succeeded because they formed relationships with, say, Dutch merchants for pipe staves or with iron merchants in the iron markets along the Severn River in England, uh, not because of a sort of national wood scarcity in England. Virginia struggled entirely when it got closest to success for woodland colonies was in the case of ironworks where it was experts coming from Gloucestershire uh, from those Severn commercial networks. Looking beyond that, I shift to the greater Caribbean into Bermuda and Barbados. And in Bermuda in particular, we see the emergence, Bermuda and Barbados form as a couplet for each other as well in that they represent two very different potential outcomes in places where wood is important locally, but does not become a international or transatlantic commodity. So in Bermuda, you see very rapid, a very rapid evolution of a colonial idea about what I would again call sustainability. There's fears about the damaging effects of wind on crops there. And there are efforts to replant trees as windbreaks. There are efforts to cultivate wood as a luxury commodity, uh, particularly the Bermuda cedar, uh, which is not in fact, botanically speaking, a cedar, but a juniper. Um, but nonetheless, you have efforts to cultivate woods in very different ways than either Virginia and Ireland, where they're meant to serve those kinds of interests of national security. Instead in Bermuda, you see the evolution of a number of systems to view trees and their sustainable management as something that will be very useful for colonists. This is really frustrating for investors in the colony back in England who often have desires uh, to have commercially viable products shipped across the Atlantic, 
nonetheless, you even see efforts from them to try to engage in some early aspects of sustainable management of woods here. Turning to Barbados, Barbados is famous really as one of the most transformed places in the Atlantic. Barbados begins as a densely forested land and within about 50 years, subsequent maps. So this is a very early map uh, made, by, made for uh, Richard Ligon who wrote the first history of Barbados. Uh, within 50 years, you see a landscape of cane and of cane fields and windmills rather than hills and forests. And so the question is why and how did that transformation occur? And by looking at property records that are held in the Barbados National Archives, uh, I went through about 2,500 deeds and leases and found about 500 of them that were, that dealt with wood in some way. I show that even there, it was not a process of sort of rapid and immediate colonial exploitation, but rather an idea of, again, kind of careful management of resources that was nonetheless bound up with things like colonization and slavery, uh, the creation of a slave system in Barbados. And in the case of Barbados, what we see in these deeds and leases is a number of lease conditions very similar to what the Earl of Cork might have put in place somewhere like Ireland. So efforts to prevent felling of trees over a certain diameter, to protect certain categories of trees, to provision for replanting in various ways. The shift where it occurs here is not sort of out of a sense that trees are not valuable, but out of a sense that trees aren't as valuable as sugar. And indeed, you see colonial policy shift in line with this. In part, um, the long-standing story about wood in Barbados is that trees from New England are going to are a response to deforestation on the island. I flip the causation here. Instead, when New Englanders show up, there's still pretty robust protections for trees in most of the leases that we find in Barbados. And there's still evidence in the leases of stores of wood in a number of places on the island. Instead, the arrival of supplies of cheap timber from New England is going to become an external push that enables deforestation in Barbados rather than something that is a response to it. So it allows colonists to begin to choose to look for wood elsewhere rather than to supply it locally. I conclude the book by re-examining, I think one of the most famous texts of early modern forestry and what's often seen as a foundational text for English environmentalism, which is John Evelyn's Silva. And Silva has this sort of outsized power in environmental historians imagination and even of English environmentalists. In part, this is Evelyn's own doing. Evelyn will write that he is the first person ever to write about trees in England and to take the problem seriously, uh, glossing over people like Arthur Standish with who I began. Uh, and Evelyn will then claim uh, quite hyperbolically in the second edition of Silva that the mere publication of his book had led to innumerable and uncountable trees being planted all over England, uh, solving the problem of scarcity at least a bit. 
the way I end the book is to look closely at exactly how Evelyn is imagining England's relationship with other parts of the world, uh, the places that I look at in the previous chapters, as well as New England. And what we find is that scarcity in England is no more solid when Evelyn is writing about it in 1660 than when Arthur Standish was writing about it 50 years before. The problems of uncertainty, problems of knowledge, problems of politics and of political ecology remain in place a half century later. For Evelyn, scarcity is still something that is both already upon us, soon to be there, and in the distant future all at once. There's a way in which time expands and contracts when talking about wood scarcity, and it's a real problem for Evelyn. Interestingly enough, despite lots of knowledge about Virginia and Ireland from some of the correspondents in the Hartlieb circle with whom he was familiar, he writes almost nothing about those places. Ireland is meant to be the source of the strawberry tree, and Virginia is the source of one useful tree that can be grown in England. The efforts to turn these places into sources of wood for England don't really matter. Uh, they show up places that actually had wood markets show up in nearly the same amount as Bermuda and Barbados. They're sources of interesting trees, uh, not part of any sort of an economic or ecological system. The one exception to this is New England, and there we get a sense of exactly how English scarcity is functioning under Evelyn. For Evelyn, New England is perhaps a place to which English ironworks need to be moved to solve the problem of scarcity. But perhaps it's not. It's very uncertain for him. And so there he's going to ultimately say we can move there or we cannot. And it will depend upon the desires of the crown and on what type of empire they want to form rather than necessity at all. And so on that note of uncertainty, I'll end now and I'm looking forward very much to the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Keith, for that introduction to the book. Um, you know, it's really interesting to hear about the ways in which then scarcity is a constructed um, concept and it can be constructed in different ways. And so you talked about the ways in which it can be a, a question of uh, bureaucracy, uh, right? So you, you can decide to count in, in different ways. Um, it's a, it's a question of imagination, right, um, in essence. I'm wondering about the question of use here, um, about the different uses of the woods and how those might create with some people an idea of scarcity. In other words, are they talking about particular kinds of, of trees doing a particular job um, for humans, um, that then when they do other jobs, that those are just, they, they don't count. So therefore it's still scarce. Yes, yeah, the, the problem of, of different uses and how woodlands will be altered by those different uses is one that comes up in both the English setting, but also pretty frequently in colonial settings. In England, these are sort of well-worn concepts uh, coming out of medieval patterns of forest use. And at least there, there's sort of a fantasy of uh, harmony of different uses that 
managing woods for deer, but also to provide ship timber and also to provide some small manufacturing can coexist harmoniously. Not really the case in practice in many places. Um, and in the early modern period, also not the case, but that idea of harmony does stick around, uh, even in some objections from English foresters in this period. But in a number of cases, you see preferences for different species based on use. Uh, in Bermuda, for example, the uh, palmetto, uh, so a, palm, a, a form of cabbage palm uh, that is in Bermuda is going to be extremely popular to provide construction materials and to manufacture a kind of palm hooch uh, called bibby that they're drinking at various points here. And that's going to lead to real conflicts. There's going to be conflicts over using this to produce alcohol or not that are going to become quite vigorous and, and animate a lot of court cases. In Ireland, uh, whether wood should be managed as places to pasture cattle or to provide trees for ironworks is going to be a consistent conflict. Uh, and in Virginia, where there's a real diversity of trees growing uh, pretty closely intermixed with each other rather than relatively homogenous, relatively homogenous forest, uh, you end up seeing different commercial groups within the Virginia company sort of vying to see whose use will win out in these particular areas. I do tend to think that those conflicts over use are often bound up with social conflict, particularly in places like England, uh, and it, or at least the rhetoric of social conflict. So you will have, at times, local gentry uh, crying out on behalf of the poor saying that if their right to common animals in the woods is curtailed, uh, that the poor will starve uh, and that it's those rotten iron masters who are attempting to lead to social destruction. So I think use conflicts and social conflicts are often closely entangled in a number of both English and then colonial cases as well. Well, then I was wondering how enclosure fits into this, right? Because you're having the enclosure, the beginnings of enclosure as, as a movement of, of taking away those kind of common rights, of moving it over to um, be rights, uh, you know, uh, Lord's kind of private property. I mean, there's, there's questions of how this works, but that movement and how that functions into creating a notion of scarcity and particularly thinking about your... Um, Irish case where it's where it, when when the the Lord is saying oh no sorry we can't give you wood it's not because there might not be wood but we can't give you wood right so and I wondered how that fits in with kind of enclosure as a property regime and other similar property regimes that are happening when you make colonies right so you colonize and you you make property boundaries in a particular way yeah so and Enclosure ends up playing a sort of odd role, not the one I initially expected it would. Um, in the case of English forestry, where the enclosure fights come up most frequently is when enclosures are built to protect coppices. Uh, so regenerating shoots of hardwood trees that are felled and then can regrow and be uh, harvested again for firewood. In those cases, the fences put up their threat and uh, animal pasture rights. 
But this is less about taking land and that was held in common and moving it into private property. And it's more a fight over preservation measures on crown property. In Ireland, coppices become a source of conflict as well uh, for similar reasons. You get some places in which there is enclosure uh, similar to England. So the Percivals in Ireland, I think, are a really good example of that, where they're really going to try to convert as much land as they can into these massive holdings for sheep pasture. Uh, but in many cases, the problem of fences, even in colonies, is about protecting plants rather than about creating space for animals. So I'd like to jump in with a question here. So I was quite intrigued uh, by your discussion of sustainability uh, as a practice. You know, you're describing this as uh, early examples of discussions of that. So, um, of course, the, the sustainability where the roots are typically put is like in German forestry, where they talk about starting to produce wood on long timescales. Um, because it takes you know, 60, 70, 80 years to, to regenerate the wood. So you need this kind of management perspective. Uh, and today the discussion is more framed about you know, meeting the needs of future generations. Again, so it's this long-term thing. Um, but in some of the, the examples you used, I got the impression more that this was as much a question of competing uses in the present that it could be used for other things too. So could you um, expand a little bit on that uh, and, and say something about those tensions between short-term immediate needs and long-term perspectives, what, what you really see there? Yeah, one of the animating phrases that shows up in all of the discussions of wood here is posterity. Um, in a number of the proposals to James and Charles, these 17th century monarchs, for how wood should be managed, it's always for posterity. Um, and even in someone like Standish or later someone like Evelyn, they're all going to say, well, it's the crown that has an interest in posterity, where often otherwise it will be short term. And so there is this sense that trees exist on long time scales and that those time scales need to be taken into consideration. I think the place where long-term and short-term have interesting kinds of conflicts here is exactly which longer timescales are to be uh, respected here. So ship carpenters are thinking in 50 to 150 year periods, whereas those managing coppices are thinking about returns in perpetuity or managing for firewood or charcoal production in perpetuity, but they're imagining 15 to 20 year cycles of production rather than those 50 to 150. And so even there, as everyone is talking about posterity, uh, the sort of subunits of posterity are going to end up looking different for different sorts of people when we get into other user groups. So in Bermuda, for example, when they talk about planting windbreaks to protect their tobacco or, or food crops from tropical winds, there the sense is that the trees just need to be grown and need to be there forever and that any felling regime can't alter the windbreak in such a way as it would jeopardize the crops. Uh, so I think we have these ideas of things existing in place for a very long time, 
But then interesting conflicts start to come up where even a lot of people thinking, at least in some sense, with a desire to manage resources effectively to produce yields, I don't think they're quite always worried about meeting the needs of future generations. They're worried about a yield that will persist in time. They're often willing to exclude uh, or violently exclude in order to produce those yields. So there's none of the kind of ESG rhetoric that we serve, sustainability rhetoric about social sustainability that we see at the present. Um, but rather you see these conflicts even among people thinking about the distant future about what sorts of subunits should make up that distant future and then having fights over it. I think it's a really nice observation that there that the future is not just one thing, right? So thinking long-term can exist on very different scales. Uh, Dominique has a question. Thank you. Um, sorry, I can't put on my video. I think there's still recording, but that's absolutely fine. Um, so my question, uh, thank you very much for that talk. Um, I don't know so much about forest history only from the kind of German Central European cases. And of course there are similar stories as, as you know. My, and, and you were framing this a little bit in the kind of history of knowledge kind of um, framework, which I found really interesting. And you mentioned also shipbuilding and mining and these kind of things. And I was wondering if how much you can extract like knowledge of the um, if you will, biology of trees, like different kinds of trees and, and connected to that, can you use the maps in any way to reconstruct some kind of um, specific knowledge on kind of different kinds of trees and how that played in uh, in these kind of projects? Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that's such a wonderful question. What's intriguing about the maps, I started off looking at the maps with the hope of doing a reconstruction and maybe getting a sense of what might be there. And then as I started looking more closely at the maps, uh, particularly the one I showed you from Mogili in Ireland against some of the existing manorial sources there, deeds, leases, uh, reports from estate managers, the maps became increasingly unreliable for me. Uh, similarly, in the maps of Barbados that I had, where I spend quite a bit of time trying to work with maps, I had this goal. Uh, Richard Ligon is, is, gives so many different tree species and talks about their uses and at least a little bit about their distribution. And then I started going through property records and finding trees where there weren't supposed to be any trees or finding that there weren't trees where there were supposed to be trees. So essentially the, the map as a visual object or the map as a representation of landscape and then property records as a different kind of representation of landscape were showing these two things that didn't necessarily line up very neatly with each other. Uh, the other issue that I found, and, and this goes to your point about the biology of different kinds of trees, is that because so many of the records we have are focused on economic utility, we don't get a discussion of more than a few varieties of trees. So in England, it's mostly oak, beech, and then you get sort of mixed underwood or coppice as just these categories that cover everything else. Um, in Barbados, you get a few trees that are gonna be used as dye woods or as commercially exportable luxury hardwoods. Uh, in Barbados, or sorry, in Bermuda, you get 
more or less the Bermuda cedar and the palmetto. And those are really the only trees outside of fruit trees, uh, figs, oranges, uh, citrons that are being grown that ever get mentioned in specific cases. So I think one of the issues in that that, that winds up being intriguing to think about, but frustrating from the goal of reconstruction is that as far as the records are concerned, only a few kinds of tree exist and everything else is just sort of reduced to a general category of wood. Well, so in, in thinking about this, you know, what you've described in your project here of scarcity, the construction of scarcity and history of idea, um, I'm curious how that relates to, in your subtitle, you use political ecology. Mm -hmm. um, then how do you think about political ecology um, as a, yeah, as, as an inquiry here in, in your book and what this tells you um, about both this case and kind of more broadly about how we might understand what political ecology is or can be used to do? Yeah, so for me, what animated the use of political ecology in this book was trying to think about the ways, was trying not to presuppose what a tree meant and what a tree might mean to any of my historical subjects, but to really try to step as far back as I could and understand how they might be attempting to define everything from a single tree up to the landscape, and then to understand that those definitions would not be widely shared. And in part, working in a colonial context made it very easy to do that. Um, we know that colonists are going to define the landscapes they encounter in very different ways from the people who had been living there at the time or who were living there at the time. And so just knowing that I needed to keep that in mind was a big part of it. And so I tend to look at political ecology as thinking about the ways in which people work to define what nature is or what an environment is. And then the ideas about use, rights, ownership, regulation, and access that accompany those definitions. So to go back to your question about use, I think even in the basis of defining, is this a wood? What kind of wood is it? Uh, you end up smuggling in quite a lot about what use is when you do so. And that's true in England, but it ends up being true in colonies as well, where defining is a tree a commodity? Does it even exist on paper or not? Ends up having really important impacts for whether it is the kind of thing that might be preserved through say regulation to make it maximally economic or commercially useful, even if it might have uh, lots of other uses and might be desirable in lots of other ways. Well, one of the things that I, I really like about these book talks is we have the opportunity to ask authors about their process, right? Mm. So things you may not write up front in 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 the book i mean sometimes we do in, a, in an acknowledgement section but i was curious then how one you came to this as a particular topic and then how you yeah followed the 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 wood or perhaps the mentions of there not being wood um to these these different places and what that meant as a historian and the historian's craft 
Yeah, thank you. So I had started off uh, writing a dissertation on colonial visions of landscape, English colonial visions of landscapes in the 16th and 17th century Atlantic world. And I started off thinking about England, Ireland, and Virginia, trying to work with those three together because they're often mentioned in, in concert with each other in the colonial and promotional literature. And in my dissertation, I thought about land, animals, uh, trees, water. So I, I thought along a number of places. And then as I was doing a workshop towards the end of my dissertation, uh, a historian, Carla Pastana, said, you have too many things. You, <laughs> you really need to focus on things. And it was such a useful insight because in immediately when she said that, I said, oh, well, the book needs to be about wood then. Um, that's what they're spending the most time talking about. That's animating discussions of a number of other things. Wooden water would be coupled together. Wooden animals would be coupled together. And so I then really turned to focus more closely on wood. And the tough thing about the story in the different places, I wanted to get a sense of the diverse types of environment in which English people engaged in colonial enterprises in this period. And then also think about what exactly, how different is it from what's happening in England? Is it similar in any way? So I need to think about England as well. The trend in Atlantic history is to tell stories of connection, of the ways in which an Atlantic world that is at least some kind of a cohesive or semi-cohesive unit gets bound together. And in this book, I wound up telling a story in which there were efforts to link places together, but in which they were often fraught or didn't happen. And so it was a real challenge for writing. I had to figure out how to tell stories in which sometimes the chronologies would overlap between chapters uh, and in which I wasn't telling a story about, say, a commodity moving from one place to another successfully, but rather attempts to create connection that emerged and then just as often fizzled. Um, so I think I've realized in doing this project that in some ways I'm a historian who's really interested in failure and that in thinking about failure, um, you can see the, the connections that people wanted to make and that didn't end up happening. And I, I think at least that's useful when thinking about Atlantic history precisely because it is so often a story of connection. And in this case, it's a story of, of missed connections or ephemeral connections and in which the locality winds up dominating over the network. So I was wondering a bit about what you said, you know, that your goal is not to, to tell a story of commodities moving successfully from one place to another, but but I was still wondering about that. Uh, so I'm, I'm not an early modernist, uh, so there may be some gaps in my knowledge here, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand the, the significance and the extent of this trade of shipping wood across the Atlantic, which strikes me as like, how in the world could that be, you know, financially sound as a decision uh, so I, I totally get you know the, the in a way the relation building and the knowledge history part of it but it's like actually moving physically wood from a continent to another in bulk um, 
how how that would have worked and could it be then that part of this discussion uh, and its eventual failure is the growth of a domestic market in the colonies that it doesn't make sense to ship it uh i mean or it makes even less sense to ship it to to the old world yeah so this is where i think political ecology ends up mattering at least in the rhetoric there's this sense that the empire needs it and so cost shouldn't matter or that the navy needs it and cost shouldn't matter uh, to think in more modern terms, it, it's at least in some way analogous to the way that states will talk about critical strategic materials uh, like aluminum in the Second World War or something like that, where even if it's non-economical, um, you just do it anyway because you need it. And that's the rhetoric, but that's not really the way it works out. Um, there are limited cases in which it is viable to ship things across the Atlantic as well as across the ocean. Um, and it usually depends upon the density and robustness of commercial networks that exist and the presence of a market on the other side. So in the case of Ireland, the connection with a number of continental merchants, uh, particularly in the Netherlands, is gonna be critically important to how their woods find a market. Uh, when Virginia gets really close to having a viable ironworks, it's because there's this dense network of merchants coming out of Gloucestershire who can actually buy these things. And a, a set of local market conditions that exist for about a five-year period, that would make it viable. Um, when there are ironworks set up in New England, they're using capital from capital and knowledge from Ireland in part to set up those initial ironworks. And then they end up failing um, in part because there's cheap English iron being shipped across the Atlantic and it, and it destroys it. Uh, you get masts and, other, and some luxury commodities where the value of a tree, either because it's an extremely large mast in the case of some New England pines or because it's really valuable uh, for luxury uses, uh, constructing furniture, things like that, in the case of, say, the Bermuda cedar or things like yellow wood, in other cases, fustic and mastic from the Caribbean. Um, specialty uses can make it economically viable, even shipping something as bulky as a tree. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, there's this tension between a sense that this serves a, this should serve some kind of imperial or security purpose and then bashing up against the logistical and economic realities of what it would mean to actually try to do it. So um, we were wondering what you would be going to next, right? Uh, so you, you uh, had mentioned it was one year since the book came out. Um, so are you staying with woods are you staying with the time period are you yeah yeah you know moving around to some to something completely different uh we'd love to hear about it yeah so i i've jumped uh in a number of ways i thought i was going to end up staying close and then the project ended up taking me to a different place um i'm looking at i'm writing a book that's going to look at the evolution of municipal waterworks, uh, specifically in Philadelphia, 
And the ways in which that's connected to fantasies about climate and what I thought would end up being an epilogue for a book on, on water management in Philadelphia from the 17th century into the 18th century ended up becoming the center part of my story. And so in 1798, uh, Benjamin Latrobe, who goes on to be the architect of the US Capitol, writes a proposal to bring fresh water to the citizens of Philadelphia and also to cool the air. And so he, he ties, he weds these two together uh, using, as he puts it, the unprecedented power and sort of technological freedom associated with the steam engine. And so I'm looking in this book at the ways in which steam become, steam for municipal waterworks becomes a technology of altering climate, why that was seen as a desirable goal, and the way in which this particular project of altering the climate was bound up with some earlier efforts to bring water dating back to the 17th century and to transform the waterscape of the land that would become Philadelphia into one that was set up for an English colony. Uh, I still wind up looking across the Atlantic quite a bit. Uh, Latrobe was thinking about London, so I try to think about why there's a transition to steam in London Waterworks as well. Uh, but I've jumped uh, quite a bit in time and topic. Uh, wood is still a part of the story though, in part because uh, the fuel and the pipes that are providing the, the, the fuel for the ironwork or for the steam engines and the pipes providing the water are made out of wood. And so there's thinking about scarcity that's animating uh, quite a bit of that as well. That's good. Stick to the wood. Uh, so anyway, we should wrap up then. So I'd like to just uh, thank you, uh, Keith Plamers, for talking about uh, your book, No Wood, No Kingdom political ecology in the English Atlantic. Um, it's out now or came out last year with the University of Pennsylvania Press. So thank you also to everyone in the audience for coming. Thank you so much, it was a pleasure. Yeah.